Welcome everyone. I'm your host, Katrine Erickson, the Executive Director of the Rungswin Research Program, a nonprofit focused on preventing cancer in patients with a rare inherited blood cancer predisposition called Rungswin Familial Platelet Disorder. I'm also an inaugural member of the Milken Institute Faster Cures Leaders Link Program. And in this podcast series, I will share interviews with leaders in the healthcare space who have made significant advances in the diseases they work on through their roles in venture philanthropy, pharma, biotech, academia, venture capital, regulatory agencies, and more. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Michael Hund, who is the CEO of Epidermal Lysis Bellosa Research Partnership, the largest global nonprofit organization dedicated to funding research to treat and cure epidermal lysis bullosa. EB is a devastating genetic disease that attacks the skin. Children are covered in wounds that never heal, causing disfigurement, blisters, bleeding, and ever-present pain. It is lethal for many of the children born with it. Prior to EBRP, Michael served as the Director of Development for the Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation, leading multiple major initiatives, including their successful $100 million Curing Cancer Now campaign. Before MMRF, Michael spent over a decade at the actor and philanthropist Paul Newman's Hole in the Wall Gang Fund, working on behalf of children and their families battling cancer and other life-threatening illnesses. Michael, thanks so much for joining me and for taking the time to share both your experience and your insights on how to effectively pursue cures for patients with devastating diseases. Well, hi, Katrine. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be with you today. As a mentor of mine through the Milken Institute Faster Cures program, you've so generously shared with me over the past year a wealth of insights from your professional journey. And I'd like our listeners to hear just some of your wisdom today. I'd love it if we could first start with you spending a few minutes sharing your unique career path and how you ended up becoming the CEO of EBRP. Well, thank you again so much, Katrine. And as I tell you all the time, you are as much a mentor to me as I am for you. So happy to share wisdom, but look forward to continuing to learn from you as well. So thank you again. A little bit about my background, maybe unique, maybe similar to some of us who have ended up in nonprofit work in medical research, but it wasn't the path I had planned as a young boy. You want to be a doctor or a firefighter or you know whatever it may be. Not many people say at a young age, I want to be a fundraiser. I want to necessarily go out and, and cure disease. So <laughs> it, it wasn't my intended career path, to be completely honest. I, I had a life-changing moment around the age of 18. My grandfather actually was in the bottling industry and had done some bottling for Newman's Own. And my grandfather was a great entrepreneur. I looked up to him as long as I can remember, you know, asking him about business and the secret to life and and all these sort of things. And I remember, you know, he always used to say, we can talk about all those things, but what life is really about is what this guy Paul Newman's doing. He's had this successful career in acting and race car driving and business, but, you know, he's decided to give it all away and spend his time for those that can really benefit from his time and energy and, and his support, you know, those that need him. And so he told me about this camp in the woods of Connecticut, which was very far from the thousand acre cattle ranch I grew up in the Flint Hills of Kansas. And he said, look, they they built a camp. And the idea was that kids with serious illness, cancer, sickle cell, HIV, AIDS, they were dealt a bad hand. 
and they, they don't have the opportunity to be a kid, go to summer camp, ride a horse, camp out in cabins. And so, you know, Newman's idea was let's create a camp in the woods of Connecticut where kids, whether they're on active chemo treatment or cancer survivors or battling any range of serious illness, they can go to the camp and they can be kids and supported in a medically safe environment. So the camp is wonderful and had the best medical care in the world so children could go and, and really just be kids. The beautiful thing about the camp wasn't the programming itself, it was the community that was built. So the 14-year-old with the scar on his or her chest from where their port had been from active chemo treatment could talk to the seven-year-old who was just beginning their chemo treatment and say, look, it's going to be okay and, and here's what you need to know. And so that connection, you know, that camaraderie and sense of community, I found to just be incredibly powerful. My path was I was going to go to law school and be a lawyer, but it changed my life working with, with kids who were battling serious illness, mainly just because of the bravery that you see. They, they face so many obstacles early on in life and, and the courage and the perseverance and the resiliency that it takes really gave me a perspective that what else is there to do in this life but, but help young people like this. So I, I worked for Paul and the organization for a little over 10 years, started on the program side, working with hospitals all throughout the Northeast, uh, got into the fundraising side and executive side. And I love the cause, you know, still near and dear to my heart to this day. I met my wife there and, you know, four daughters later, uh, very grateful for, for my time at Hole in the Wall. My life, my career, my focus, my mentality, I guess, has been on problem solving. And it's always been something that I've focused on and, and even fixated on is this this seeking of solving problems and challenges and overcoming obstacles. And you know, one of the realities of the, the job was the loss of life in young people. And it was the worst part of the job, but ultimately a reality of the job where young people would pass away from disease. And after you, I went through that a couple times, I started to seek solving the greater problem, which is the, the camp was a great resource of community building, but it wasn't doing anything to cure the root problem, which was disease itself. I was lucky to find a mentor and a woman and a leader named Kathy Juicy. And Kathy started the Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation. Um, she was diagnosed with multiple myeloma. They basically said, it's bleak. There's not much we can do. Get your affairs in order. She really believed in running a nonprofit and medical research organization like a Fortune 500 company. So I went to go work uh, with Kathy in the Multimyeloma Research Foundation in 2014. I was able to see if you approach cures, treatments, medical research with this business acumen and this business mentality, the progress that was achieved in, in the decade was just remarkable. And it was Kathy's influence that said, you know, look, I wanted to pursue greater education. I wanted to advance in my career. And she said, look, you should really think about an MBA. There's all kinds of degrees in the healthcare space, but nonprofits can really benefit from more people with a business mentality, with a business approach to the work. So um, I went and did my MBA focused on healthcare and, and started writing a lot about venture philanthropy, impact investment models. It was through that that I met uh, one of the founders of EB Research Partnership, also a mentor of mine. Alexander Silver, his son Jackson was diagnosed with epidermolysis bullosa. We can call it EB for, for the rest of this conversation. He saw a problem, which is the landscape is bleak. It's a, it's a rare disease. The groups that fund this work are just writing checks and hoping for the best. You know, that's not efficient. He came from a business background in private equity, and the concept of just giving a check over with, with nothing in return just didn't quite make sense. And it doesn't make sense, although that has been the norm traditionally for, for medical research. So Alex and I started talking and, and joined EB Research Partnership 
at the beginning of 2018, and we've really been on a rapid growth trajectory. Venture philanthropy is the core of what we do. So every piece of research, we've funded about $50 million in the EB space, just over 80 projects, and almost every single one has been under a venture philanthropy model. And what does that mean for us? Venture philanthropy really means that whether we're funding academic medical center research, whether we're funding private or public companies, whether we're starting companies, and we've started four companies in the last two years under a nonprofit model, there's some economic upside. So when research that we fund is commercialized, there is some return that comes back to the organization so we can fund more research and tell a cure for the disease. Wow, Michael. I mean, I think it's it's fascinating to listen to how your own experience and your own career trajectory really shaped and evolved your perspective on how to bring to bear your problem solving and your critical thinking on curing diseases. I think um, what struck me is that clearly when you were at Paul Newman's organization, you recognized the value in connection and a sense of community, but also learned that that wasn't enough and that you had to really think about from a business perspective, how do you push forward cures for these devastating diseases more than just driving home um, connection and community between patients? How do you actually solve these problems? So I think it's really fascinating to hear how you evolved as an individual and now have put all of your learnings into the into EBRP. And I look forward to kind of digging into maybe some case examples. I mean, this concept of venture philanthropy is something that's kind of thrown around a lot these days. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about, you know, what makes your approach at EBRP perhaps unique? What makes it stand out? And, and maybe again, you know, provide some case examples of what's worked. That would be great. And, and you know, you bring up a, g- a great point, Katrina, as well. And I think leaders in the nonprofit space, whether it be a wide range of causes, but the focus on our space in healthcare, I, I think really innovation can happen when you have people that are driven by passion of the communities that they serve, but also bring that business acumen and discipline to our work, to our mission. I think that's becoming less rare, but historically it's been rare. You you either have somebody that is incredibly passionate, but maybe not the business background or somebody with the business background that's missing the, the passion, empathetic side of our work. So that mix is the right type of mix, I, I think, to really create impact in our spaces. What makes EB Research Partnership different? We certainly didn't invent venture philanthropy, right? I would give the, the credit to cystic fibrosis and, and perhaps some of the larger earlier examples. You know, I would argue that we've pioneered venture philanthropy in the sense that we've made it a core principle of our mission and a core principle of our work. So it, it's not something that we dabble in. It's not something that we experiment with in a traditional sense. We're constantly evolving and experimenting it, but every piece of research that we fund falls under a venture philanthropy model. And that starts from the moment that we go out to the global research community and we do calls from, for grants that are independently reviewed by our scientific advisory board. And we really look to them to, to guide us on the best science to support uh, and the most impactful work for patients. But we're very open from the moment that we go out to the community to be very clear. What makes us different is that anything that we decide to to fund as an organization will fall under a venture philanthropy model. And and here's the basics of how it works. So I I think it starts with the transparency and the communication up front to make applicants who apply for funding aware of 
you know, even before their yes or no on funding, we're very open about the model in which we operate. We're also very open as to why. Rare disease, organizations like ours and the 7,000 other rare diseases that impact 10% of the global population, you know, more than 400 million people, more than cancer and HIV combined, that's a large group in aggregate. But each of our individual groups, sometimes it can feel isolating or that we're small or we're under-resourced, which is, which is often true. But that actually makes for a strong case for venture philanthropy. And, and why is that? And what makes rare disease different, perhaps, and not just what makes EB Research Partnership different, is that there is lots of funding sources for many types of cancer and Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and bigger disease groups, right? And why is that? They affect more people. So government entities, for example, large foundations, you know, there's, there's a bigger pool of funding available. And rare disease, we know that's simply not the case. So the ability to negotiate terms on funding is enhanced because, why? Because of the absence of capital. Groups like Runx One and EBRP, I mean, oftentimes we are the only funders of that research. Again, whether you are an academic medical center researcher or clinician, or you're a biotech or startup pharmaceutical company looking to get into the space, I mean, there's only a few players. The ability to negotiate terms is a greater possibility than, let's say, some larger groups where they come to the table with nonprofit funding and a group may say, why should we negotiate terms with you? We can get that funding at 10 other places. I think. So let me, let me just interrupt for a second if I can, Michael. So when you're talking about negotiating terms, just to clarify, are you talking about negotiating terms irrespective of the applicant and their institution or type of organization they are coming from? Right, exactly right. So I think, you know, we go forth with sort of a standard ask, you know, a standard venture philanthropy agreement. Um, each university, for example, is different. There's a little push and pull between universities and oftentimes we work with tech transfer offices on those negotiations. It's a similar set of terms. Uh, when, when you work with companies, it's just, it's different. The benefit of working with companies is that they tend to be later stage and they have a, a commercialization strategy. Not that academia doesn't, but but that's fairly consistent when working with companies. So as far as the negotiations, you know, oftentimes it, it may be faster to negotiate with companies uh, because this is something that they're used to. They're motivated by, they're motivated to get to market. And academia is as well, but academia is slower, rightfully so, they're more cautious. And it's a slower moving process when you work with tech transfer offices at universities. So just the time frame of negotiations tends to be different working with academia and companies. I think everybody has the same goals of wanting to accelerate things from a, a lab and a bench to the bedside of patients. The other thing that I think makes it different is over time, it's nice to have a portfolio mix. EB, we've been very lucky as of late. We have a long way to go. But you know, when this organization started back in 2010, incredibly bleak landscape. Two clinical trials. Today, there's more than 35. So you know, as a funder, whether it's negotiating terms or identifying the, the most high capacity, the most impactful projects, it's always going to be science first for us. But now we've funded more than 80 projects and we need to start thinking like a venture capitalist or almost like a private equity fund where you're looking at your portfolio and saying, well, how many gene therapy projects have we funded? What stage of clinical trials are there? Where is there a need for groups to come in, whether they be academia or private or public companies? So that's really evolved a lot just because of where we are in the disease and the volume of clinical trials and, and the volume of progress. The other thing that 
I think is important to think about is you know, when we negotiate, we always say, you know, we're a nonprofit until it comes time to come to the negotiation table, which I think is something that makes us very different. Our process is not that much different than the, the historical traditional way of medical research organizations call for grants, independent scientific advisory board review. But our, our switch really flips the moment that a contract goes out because, again, we almost become benevolent investors or venture capitalists with a cause, right? Like we're, we're going to negotiate terms on behalf of patients. You know, those are our shareholders and our stakeholders because if there's a commercial upside and there can be some economic return or ROI, which traditionally is return on investment, but for us it's return on impact. Why is it return on impact? Because, you know, if there's an economic stake or revenue that can come back to the foundation, that's funding more research uh, until we reach our ultimate goal. So what's important to know about venture philanthropy is that we will come to the table and negotiate as a venture capitalist would, but where are the thresholds? What makes us different than a traditional venture capitalist? For us, number one is always the mission, always the cause, always what's best for patients. And I think that's what makes venture philanthropy perhaps different than venture capital in the sense that we're not just a social impact fund. We're not a private equity or venture capital fund for EB. So our first mandate is always what's best for patients. Is this a treatment that is going to have significant impact on the quality of life of those living with EB? And economic return is second. And that seems simple, but again, that's different than traditional investment, meaning that when it comes to negotiation to your question, there's going to be some more wiggle room there that's a balancing act between impact and serving our patient community and economic interests. So, so we're going to be more flexible than perhaps a giant venture capital fund would. We're not looking at just the numbers. And in fact, first, we're looking on the impact to the patient community. And then, of course, we are going to look for economic upside uh, because why not? You know, mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, we're angel early seed investors that are de-risking early stage investments. No one else is taking the risk on that capital. We are taking the risk with the hopes of accelerating these investments into clinical trials, into approvals for, for EB patients around the world. So there should be some economic return, but oftentimes we remind ourselves as a pillar that the first mandate is what's best for patients. And I think that, to speak broadly at least around negotiation, is something that makes venture philanthropy different than traditional venture capital. Absolutely. I think one of the questions that came to mind as you were speaking is this concept of you know impact and how do you measure impact. Do you feel that venture philanthropy is well understood by your patient community? Do they value this model and this approach? And do they, they understand the benefits? And um, do you think, this a, here's a, quite a few questions here, do you think that it's actually helped you accelerate towards a cure by implementing a model like this? That's a great question I think about often. And my immediate answer would be, we need to be better about how uh, we engage with the understanding of something that can be complex, uh, investment, venture capital. And that's something that we're constantly striving to do. And it's something that we've actually been talking about as a, as a key initiative for this year. You know, however, what I will say is at a high level, what helps is case studies and the reality of what we've been able to accomplish. And with any 
business, nonprofit or for-profit, being able to show the impact that your work and your model has, a model like venture philanthropy is incredibly important. So a great case study for us with EB Research Partnership is back in 2016, we had made an investment in the gene therapy project at West Coast University. Our investment was around half a million dollars. And again, no one else was funding that work in an academic medical center clinic. Very exciting, it, you know, the, the ability to significantly uh, change for the better the lives of those living with EB. So we funded that project. A few short years later, there was interest from a publicly traded pharmaceutical company that acquired that IP, that research from that university. Because of the terms that we had negotiated, we were able to generate around a $3 million return on investment. And so that was, if you just do the math, 500,000 in, 3 million out, that's a 6x return on that investment. So that's the economic benefit and upside. But for us, what was more important? Well, we took something that was in a lab that, that no one else was investing in. Again, if you think of that angel seed investor mentality, what's more important to us is that we were able to help, along with the, the brilliant researchers working on that work, that research be elevated to a point where there was real commercial interest from a publicly traded group that had the capacity to take something forward. We're oftentimes you know, medical research nonprofits don't have the capacity, which isn't our goal, right? Our goal is to get it to a point where there's significant commercial interest and it's in the hands of people that have expertise to take that forward through, you know, the FDA uh, clinical trial phases into approvals for patients. The biggest win is that we invested in something that no one else would have invested in most likely and got it to a point where there was real commercial interest. Now that is a project that's in later stage clinical trials. So at a high level, you can look at a success story like that and explain to the patient community, and not only the patient community, but all those that support philanthropically this patient community, hey, not only will your dollar help advance things in a lab into clinical trials where patients can actually start to benefit from these treatments, uh, first in clinical trials, and then the hope is, of course, to actually have approvals that the patients around the world can use every day. So your dollar will do that, but, but hey, guess what else? we turned your $1 into $6, that now we're gonna use that $6 to go get six more. So at a high level, we take a great deal of pride in that as a pillar of our model. And, and I think, you know, not only do patients stand with us and are proud of that, you know, as our shareholders, as our stakeholders, knowing that we're not only laser focused on curing this disease as quickly as possible, but doing it in a way that's fiscally and financially responsible, but to add another layer, not only fiscally and financially responsible, but in a way that can generate a return off their initial investment philanthropically, that's an idea that the patient community really rallies around and really understands and takes as much pride in, I think, oftentimes as, as we do. Uh, now, not every investment is a success story. That, that's the nature of, of medical research. But I think you can look to examples like that in whether it be members of the patient community that support us or philanthropists that support us or people that have heard about the model or you know rare disease groups that we can teach about this model you know having successes certainly helps you know what else helps is having failures absolutely i think you know you mentioned the complexity in striving for a cure for rare diseases and i think one of those really huge challenges for rare disease organizations is uh, that you've got a very small population and how do you engage the right partners, as you just said, and um, incentivize companies. And you mentioned you've already uh, started several companies as an organization. How have you ensured that you've got some control or some 
I don't know if you want to use the word oversight to ensure that the mission of EBRP is followed through and then it doesn't all of a sudden get deprioritized because there are other bigger potential indications with a certain technology or a certain uh, treatment approach. Very well said. And I think really a core of learning about venture philanthropy. You know, it's not just the economic upside. There's more layers to successful venture philanthropy programs and you really hit a key one. So how do you have some say? Knowing that, you know, your goal is to be diluted and your goal is to move your investments off to to bigger players that can move it faster. So I think there's strategic ways, there's legal ways and a host of others, but just to talk through a couple uh, to, to be geeky and technical on the legal side, there's components like first rights of refusal, where in other words, we have the option to continue funding before we allow someone else to fund it, which gives us some say on is this going into the right hands or is it not? Um, disruption licenses is another legal mechanism where, hey, if uh, you know company X acquired this and they're going to sit on it for too long or they're going to deprioritize it or they're going to let it sit on a shelf, we have the option to come back in and pull this out and move forward with it on our own. Those are two legal ways to think about protecting your interests. You know, another strategic way is knowing the space, knowing the partners that you can trust and its tensions are are altruistic. And, and it's okay if if you're a you know biotech or pharmaceutical to be profit seeking, but that that is not mutually exclusive to having the best best interests of patients in mind and, and is the core fabric of a company. And you know this with Ronix One, we continue to learn every day who the right partners are, who's going to do right by the patient community, who's done right by the patient community, either in this disease or in other diseases. Who, who are those management teams? Who are those entrepreneurs? Who are those companies that you know and you can trust? You know, you don't have a crystal ball and, and none of us are right all the time, but I think strategically building teams around and starting companies around people that have done right by any rare disease community, they're out there, they exist. Again, you know, sometimes that's a product of learning the ones who aren't as much as the ones who are. But I think strategically, you know, knowing who is going to not only be a successful entrepreneur from an economic and business perspective, but who's going to be a successful entrepreneur or company and always keep patience and, and the, the desire and needs and quality of life and engagement of patients is a number one focus and core to their organizations. And there's great groups in, in rare disease that have done that. And, and so I think seeking that community, if they exist, building that community, if they don't, thinking out how to incentivize certain industry groups or companies to come and work with you and your disease when you know they're the right ones is more strategic than you know, some of the more specific legal examples. It's interesting to hear you hone in on the criticality of people and the importance of building a team or networks or partnerships with people that you trust and people who have patient centricity or patient centricity mindset. And I think this parlays nicely into another topic I wanted to discuss with you, which you mentioned at the beginning of the call as well, is the value of uh, mentorship as being you know, cornerstone of success and the importance of really sharpening your leadership qualities. Um, so I wanted to start with that question about who have been your mentors and how have they helped you prepare for 
your position at EBRP today? Yeah, well, thank you, Katrine, for, for asking that question. I don't think we talk about it enough, and I'm not sure why, whether it's a, you know blind pride or we all think we've got the best solution or, or the best answer. But, you know, it's so important in our space. We all are serving much-deserving patient communities. We're not trying to get the best uh, and, and better phone out to market as quickly as possible, right? I mean, these are people's lives. This is people's health. So, you know, mentorship, I think, is important across the board. But for those of us, like you and I, that are leaders in the rare disease space or medical research space, I would argue even so, so much more very important for us to connect, for us to share information, help one another by sharing things that worked and, and what didn't work. You know, for me, it started early on. I, I was always lucky to have strong family values. Both my grandfathers were entrepreneurs, one in the bottling beverage industry, the immigrant who came here from Italy and pulled himself up by the bootstraps with no education and made an incredible career just off grit and on hard work and, and hustle. My grandfather on my father's side was a cattle rancher. You know, maybe there, when you say, tell me about entrepreneurs, cattle ranchers and farmers aren't necessarily the first people that you would put in that bucket, but they should be. You have to deal with so much uncertainty around the weather and weather patterns and crops. And it's a, it's a high-risk business and you have to have really thick skin. So they were both incredible influences on my life. My parents were just phenomenal. My dad is a cattle rancher. My mom's a psychologist. So it gave me just an interesting perspective on the world. But in my career, first out, it started with somebody like Paul Newman. And maybe some ways it was great because me being 18 and him being in the 70s, I, I didn't realize maybe how famous he was or, or how intimidated I should be by Mr. Newman. But to be able to work with him and his organization early on in my career and see somebody that could do anything they wanted, at peak levels of success, not only as a movie star, but as a philanthropist, as a race car driver, like you name it. He, he could have just gladly rode off into the sunset, comfortable and not having to start nonprofit organizations we're high risk. At that time, nobody was saying, let's build a summer camp and send a bunch of children on active chemotherapy with intense medical needs that really don't leave their homes to someplace out in the woods of Connecticut. Like that was a high risk situation. He had everything to lose, but he knew it needed to be done. And so you put big, bold, audacious ideas like that and you find the people. And this goes to your point about people and teams. You find the people that believe in that vision and aren't going to be dissuaded to making things like that happen. So he was a phenomenal mentor in my life. Kathy Juicy was a light bulb for me. Hey, you can do really good work and be really passion driven and, you know, have noble pursuits and noble goals like curing disease, but you also can have business acumen and toughness and, and a business focus. Um, to achieve those goals. And she's still, you know, we still work in boards together and groups together, and she's doing some phenomenal work up at Harvard Business School as part of the Craft Precision Medicine Accelerator. And I'm just so grateful she's brought me along on that journey. And now that's the beauty of mentorship. Now, in some ways, I'm able to uh, enter a group like that that she started and offer value back. So she's still an important mentor in my life. Alex Silver, I've mentioned his name a couple times. There's this bond I had with him the moment that I met him for the same reason of Kathy. You know, this just business uh, fast, this urgency. You know, I think he brings the, the urgency of a New York City born and raised, Princeton and Harvard Business School educated, private equity founder and fund manager for sure. But I think if you could supercharge that with the urgency of a father uh, who wants to do everything within every second of every minute of every hour of every day to not only 
be a part of the solution of not accepting the result, uh, the, the hand that they've been dealt, but along the way, help every other family that goes through exactly what he goes through every single day. I'm blessed and lucky. I have four daughters and none of them have a rare disease or, or anything as severe as EB. So I, I feel in a lot of ways, that's my responsibility to help families that maybe didn't have that fortune that I had to, to have healthy children. But Alex is a mentor. When we first met, there was just something that I connected with with him empathetically of putting myself in his shoes as a dad. Like, what do you, what can you do here? You can accept the fate or you can fight. And, you know, not only has he chosen to fight, but he's chosen to innovate the way in which not only medical research is done in, in EB, but really, you know, rare disease at large. People are learning from this model. People are learning from this approach and this style. And so, you know, he's somebody I talk to every single day. And he's been a great guide, you know, not only sort of on the business side and the venture philanthropy side, but being an executive and being a CEO. And we were an organization in the last couple of years, we've seen massive growth and scale, which is not the norm for rare disease organizations. Again, we feel very lucky for that. But, you know, navigating that as a young CEO, it's a challenging position. And, and Katrina, I'd be curious your opinion, because you and I talk about this all the time. You want to be the best leader you can be to your team and you want to be the best leader you can to your board. So who can you really be your, your most vulnerable with? So not only a great mentor sort of for his thinking and his innovation and business mind, but just as a, as a friend uh, and somebody to really lean on those moments. Lastly, I would say you, we've really developed this phenomenal relationship over the last year where it's even more unique and I think it's more special and I encourage people to have mentorship relationships. I think traditionally people think of a mentor as, you know, somebody that's five, 10, 20 years ahead of me or where I want to be. And, and maybe that's the best form of mentorship. But I think working with you and getting to know you, I would argue that the scope can be larger for mentorship. I think mentors can be peers and mentors can be people that have the same challenges that we go through on a daily basis that are in similar positions at similar organizations, because I've benefited a great deal just from our conversations of, I'm seeing it this way. Do you see it this way? Or, you know, what, what are your thoughts on this? Am I reading this wrong? Or how should I do this? How do you guys do this? But having to be really reciprocal, which I think is an important part of mentorship, whether you can repay that reciprocation immediately, maybe you can repay it more, you know, immediately with peers like you and I, where we can just be a, a fountain of information to one another on what's working and what's not working for our organizations. And you know, maybe you have those mentors that are five, 10, 20 years ahead of you and where you want to be, you know, maybe that reciprocation comes later on down the line. Well, I couldn't agree with you more, Michael. And I want to say thank you for your kind words about our relationship. And I think mentorship is just really, truly critical throughout your journey as a professional and also throughout your journey in life. So I, I do, uh, as I said, agree so much with your sentiments. I think given that we are both working for a nonprofit and, and leading a nonprofit, and we ourselves are not directly impacted by the disease that we're pursuing, I think one thing that I, I notice is a overlap between the two of us is the the founders of our organizations both are so inspirational in their drive their sense of urgency is contagious and it, and it should be right time is our enemy when we work on such devastating diseases for the patients and their families so having those individuals like alex silver and in my case tim babich 
who comes from the business world as well. We have a lot of commonalities there in terms of the mentors we have in, in both of them. I, I wanted to ask you, you know, you at EBRP, you guys are really at the leading edge of this whole new world of venture philanthropy. And I'm sure it's lonely and it's probably not easy for you to answer this question, but I'm curious who or which organizations do you benchmark against? Who do you look to and say, there are elements or principles or business strategies that I see in these other organizations that I want to aspire to with EBRP? Yeah, you know, that's something I think about often. There's companies I actually look to in the for-profit as well as ones in, in the nonprofit space. You know, I admire the companies in the for-profit space that have a commitment to values before they have a commitment to product. And Yvonne Chouinard at, at Patagonia is a company that, that I often look to as a leadership model. They, <laughs> they went against the grain to say, we're going to make products that you never need to buy again. I mean, no planned obsolescence. What sort of business strategy is that? But they had values of building the highest quality products, you know, that, that you can have and keep for your life and pass on to your, your family members. And they wanted to be able to support environmental causes. So there's enough beautiful nature where you can actually go out and enjoy their products where they were meant to be joined in the, in the great outdoors. And they make good on that promise. It's not a marketing slogan or, or just a campaign. So, you know, companies like that and, and leaders like that, I have to say, Again, it has a lot to do with how my life was changed, but Newman's Own is a company that is still survived. It's got Paul Newman's face on it. How many people buy those products that don't even know who Paul Newman is anymore? So how do you have longevity as an actor and totally change your career path? And now all of a sudden you're known for food. Well, I think that's a company that has values and character, altruism in their DNA. I look to many of the innovative companies that have continued to push the bounds. So Apple under Steve Jobs and, and Tim Cook's leadership, how have they continued to innovate? Um, focusing on good design and simplicity, I think is important, whether you're a technology company or you're in medical research. If the patients that we serve can't understand in a simple, elegant, beautiful way what we do and why we do it, well, that's problematic. I think nonprofit organizations looking to the simplicity and elegance of great companies like Apple and product design and UX and UI being a very important part of things like patient registries and data platforms. As far as nonprofit organizations, admitting my bias, MMRF is always a, is a benchmark for me because of Kathy's leadership and what they've been able to accomplish in what I would argue a short time. 10 FDA approved treatments in a decade, you know, averaging one FDA approved treatment a year. That's where I want to get to EB Research Partnership. That's where I want to be. I want to put us out of business a decade from now, cure the disease and move on to the next one. But, you know, as a benchmark, it took a decade to get to that point, to have a productive decade like that. But, but that's a very high benchmark in my mind of, of that sort of clinical advancement and progress and impact within a short period of time. Again, you know, if we're, if we're pumping out one approved treatment in EB for the next decade, and then we can cure it, that's great success. Who else? Rents One Foundation, of course, particularly because of their leadership and their innovation and their model. And, you know, it's things you and I talk about. The organizations that are nimble and lean, and as we always say, punch above our weight class, that accomplished great things with small resources. I don't think that's sustainable. I'm actually an advocate for you know, nonprofits making sure that people aren't working 
day and night and in the middle of the night. The, the teams are well-resourced with the best teams and talent because these causes deserve it. But the ones that can really do it with urgency and nimble teams and small organizations as they scale, you know, impress me. I would put EBRP selfishly in that box, but I'd also put Rennes one in, in that box of accomplishing great deals with, with small teams. So maybe those were all people that I know, so they were just top of mind. <laughs> That's just a couple of answers. No, I actually never would have guessed your uh, your first few examples with Patagonia and Apple. And I particularly liked your explanation in terms of leveraging or always thinking about focusing on good design and simplicity. I think it just resonates with me because I'm thinking about that all the time when we're putting out communications to our community, especially our patients, trying to help them understand exactly as you said, why we're doing what we're doing, why we're funding certain research and um, what are the key critical questions to address to be able to solve this disease. So um, I thought that was really insightful. And then of course, thank you for mentioning Rexel Research Program. So I think we probably should close the interview, but I wanted to first thank you again for your time and your insights we could talk for hours and learn so much from you. But I want to end with one last question, and that is, what is one single guiding principle that you feel is central to the ongoing success of EBRP? You know, I was reading a book the other day. I'm always constantly focused on being a better leader, being a better team. So I'm, I'm a boring reader. I try to read a book a month, but I'm boring in the sense because I focus on nonfiction, you know, business <laughs> books. I, I don't work hard all day. And then I go into fantasy books at night, biographies on, or autobiographies and philosophy books and books on businesses and teams and leadership. Those are the things that I like to read. And I was reading a book not too long ago, right before the new year, called The Way of the Seal, focused on the principles of the Navy SEALs and how they manage teams and how they build this camaraderie and how they accomplish these great bold feats with usually just teams of six or less. And I was really interested in that. And so I've been reading this book and like some things uh, about an elite special forces unit are applicable to a medical research nonprofit organization and some <laughs> aren't. But one of the things that I, I really, that resonated with me and to answer your question, and it's interesting, I think usually I'd have to think a little bit longer about a question like that, but this one has been with me particularly for the last couple of months and I've been talking to my team about it, but the Navy SEALs have a motto that have many models, but one of the mottos is earn your trident every day. And that's something that I've been talking to my team a lot. And I think as a guiding principle in the sense that organizations like ours, what's the experience of the patient? What's the experience with a patient of EB? You know, every morning they wake up in excruciating pain, hours on bandages and bleach bath and doctor's appointments and medical visits, you know, it, it's an excruciating existence. And that's who we fight for. And why I think earn your trident every day is important, or more than the motto, the action around earn your trident every day. What it means to me is that we should never rest on our laurels, but be even beyond that, you know, the urgency that patients and families feel every day to cure this disease as quickly as possible, you know, we bring to work in, in a focused way in a sustainable way, meaning that regardless of what success or failure that I had yesterday, today is a new day and I have control over what I can do today. So today I ought to earn my trident and do the most for the patient community that I possibly can 
within the scope of my day. And I think that that leads to teams that are innovative. We're not focusing too much on yesterday and we're not focusing too much on tomorrow. We're focusing on what can we accomplish today. And being empathetic and understanding what these families go through every day and the, the amount of work that they have to go just to get through the care of their child on any given day, we should take that same mentality to our work to end that pain, to end that suffering, to end a devastating disease. Every day that we get up, bring our full selves to work, an open mind, a commitment to innovation, creativity, a commitment to progress, a commitment to being better than you were the day before. If I had the biggest success of my career yesterday, that doesn't mean I'm just going to coast for a couple months. <laughs> then earn your trade every single day. Show up to work wanting to be better personally, wanting to be better professionally. And I think organizations that have those type of guiding principles of always seeking improvement, always seeking guidance, always seeking feedback, being nimble enough to pivot, you know, being innovative enough to take the risks and being okay with the failure as long as we learn from it. And having that be a daily practice and a daily mentality is a principle that I, I think is really important for us as leaders, but, but I think also incredibly important for our teams and to support them in that, that, that we're there for them every day regardless of the successes and challenges. And then we're going to be there with them tomorrow to get up and, and do it all again. I love it. I, I definitely need to now read that book, The Way of the Seal. Um, earn your trident every day. I think, I think your team is very lucky to have you, Michael. I think having that kind of mantra uh, and waking up and thinking about that statement, it helps, helps you not feel too overwhelmed. If you just focus on that single day, don't worry about what happened yesterday, don't worry about tomorrow, but you just focus on the tasks for the day and keep your purpose front and center. It makes it feel like things can be achievable. So I, I love it. Uh, and I might, I might steal it. <laughs> well, yeah. And thank you. And, you know, I think it's also, it, it's honoring a gift and an opportunity that we have. The idea that you're earning your trident again every day implies that you earn that trident at one point. And I think we are stewards of not only the patient communities that we serve, but they depend on us. And if not us, who? And if not now, when? And, you know, it's an incredible opportunity, but it is a great responsibility that I know you and I both feel that we've been given this opportunity to drive real change and real progress and deliver impact and results to the communities we serve. So uh, let's make sure we never forget the profoundness of that responsibility and earn it every single day on behalf of the patients we serve. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Michael. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. I so appreciate your time with me today and your willingness to share so much with me and our listeners. And I look forward to watching you and the EBRP community officially cure EB in the very near future. Thanks so much. Absolutely. And right back at you, Katrine. Thank you so much for your time today and for the great work that you do. Thank you. Take care. Be well.